Welcome to GovCast. I am your host, Managing Editor Amy Kluber. In the studio today is President and CEO of the National Academy of Public Administration, Terry Gurton. Terry spent more than a decade in the senior executive service as a career member and as a political appointee, and 20 years of service as an active duty Army officer. Hi, Terry. Thanks for joining us on GovCast. Hey, Amy. Great to be here. Thank you. Describe NAPA's mission and your role there. The National Academy of Public Administration is a really interesting organization. It has a congressional charter that gives it a very specific mission. So we're there to help government leaders solve their most critical management challenges. And we work with government organizations at all levels, federal, state, and local. And we bring together the best expertise of our 900 fellows. And those fellows come from academia, They come from practitioner backgrounds, both at the federal level and state and local. So we bring that rich expertise, both practice and research, to government agencies to help them solve their biggest problems. We do independent thought leadership. We do in-depth studies and analysis. We do advisory services. We really want to get in, work with the agency leaders, and give them the remediation steps necessary to solve the issues that they're struggling with. And my role really is, as the leader of the organization, both strategic and tactical. So at the strategic level, it's about setting the vision for the organization, really growing its reputation and ensuring its longevity, making sure that while we've been around for 50 years, we are around for the next 50 years. But then it's also very much a tactical leadership responsibility, taking care of our people, ensuring that we have good quality work, growing the business, making sure that the day-to-day operations get done as well. So everything, sort of end-to-end development. Describe what it's like heading a congressionally chartered nonprofit. What are some of the directives, whether it's bestowed on the organization or how do you tackle some of those? So it's a really interesting mix. So we're a 501c3. So we're not a government organization, but we are chartered by Congress. So we and the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine are the only two congressionally chartered national academies. So that means that Congress can give us direction, and sometimes they do, to look into particular issues at the agency level that they're concerned about. And they can tell us to report back to them, and they do that through statute. They don't appropriate money to us, though, because we're non-governmental. So if they direct a study, they typically appropriate the funds for that study to the agency that they're directing us to study. But that congressional charter manifests itself in other ways as well. It gives us a really unique position, which means that sometimes agencies seek us out on their own without congressional direction because they want to make sure that they get the Academy's blue ribbon approach to their issues. That also brings credibility with it if they have to report back to Congress. And Congress has frequently used our reports to help them exercise their oversight responsibility as we're giving agencies back a set of recommendations that they can follow, that helps Congress ask the question, well, did you do what the Academy asked you to do? And sometimes they bring us in to help them execute that oversight responsibility. With its makeup of, as you mentioned, fellows and research and agency members, how does one go about working with the organization? Is is there kind of like an initiation process? So you have to be nominated by another fellow. We are looking for people who've had extraordinary careers and really accomplished and rewarded and uh, documented career success in the field of public administration. But that can take all kinds of different flavors. So if you're a researcher, 
or an academic, for example, typically it's a full professor who's written a number of books or published or been on commissions or really led innovative research efforts that have had significant impact. If you're a practitioner at the federal level, oftentimes that's been recognized with a presidential rank award or a SAMI or some other sort of documentation of the accomplishments of a career. At the, fe- at the state and local level, it's a little bit different, but we have, as an example, we have former governors who are fellows, we have city managers, county managers, so they've had leadership and responsibility at the highest levels. And then you have to be nominated by someone who's already a fellow, and then you have to be elected by the fellow membership. So every year we bring in somewhere between 30 and 40 new fellows, and that keeps our membership fairly constant but it gives us extraordinary reach. We have fellows all across the country, and as I mentioned earlier, fellows at every level of government with that wraparound from the academic perspective that really gives us a well-rounded approach to these kinds of government problem-solving questions. So going back into your history a little bit, (laughs) what prompted you to attend West Point? I blame my mother. (laughs) (laughs) Back when I was in high school and thinking about college options, women had just begun to be admitted to the service academies. So my mother, who was a fairly ardent feminist, thought it would be a great idea and a great way to get a free college education. And I really didn't have any idea what I wanted to do or what I wanted to study. And through a series of administrative issues with my application, I actually got an early admission offer to West Point. And so I took it, thinking that, well, if I didn't like it, I could always quit later. (laughs) And it was certainly not always easy. They were still really struggling with how to incorporate women fully into the student body and really how to think about these women graduates and their careers in the Army. But when I look back, I really wouldn't trade it. I learned so much and built such great friendships going through that process. It really has played a role kind of in my whole professional career, both in the military and in public service, just the things you learn about yourself, the things you learn about how to lead other people. How has that experience in the military informed the way you are now addressing or tackling some of the challenges that Napa now tackles? There's really no better leadership laboratory than being in the military. You learn so much about teamwork and about developing and giving clear guidance and about having a vision and planning and executing mission. So all of those things feed into how I approach the mission of the academy. But at the root of it, it made me very focused on solving the problems that were in front of me, right? How is what we're thinking about doing going to either accomplish the mission or solve the problem? And so that's really, I think, the big takeaway for me is when I look around, I see all kinds of challenges in public administration. And so the question for me is how is the academy playing a role in bringing solutions to the table. I am extraordinarily blessed to have that resource of fellows who have incredible perspective, and many of whom have the longer-term theoretical or research basis to help inform that. But I'm all about bringing practical solutions to the table. And so I think that really affects how I set the course for the academy. So what are some of the common challenges government faces from a technology standpoint? We really need to think about broad science and technology, right? I know this is GovCIO and you focus on IT, but I think there's a bigger issue around the whole science and technology space and the speed of innovation. And so 
our government, and really most governments, is designed on purpose to be slow and deliberate and to focus on ensuring the safety of our citizens. But technology in all of its different facets is moving so fast that I'm concerned that our government is not able to change fast enough to anticipate or regulate or adapt. And, you know, last February, the Government Accountability Office published a report on trends affecting um, society and government. And one of those was the rapid development of five specific technologies. It was genome editing, AI and automation, quantum information science, brain and augmented reality, and cryptocurrency and blockchain. And they said all of these are bringing ethical and regulatory challenges to government faster than government can react. So one of the things that I'm really concerned about in the public administration space is that our inability to respond or even to anticipate those kinds of science and technology changes because of our slowness and our deliberateness and our all the things we were designed to be actually is starting to in more risk into the system than it's preventing. So we think that there's a real opportunity for the public administration space to look at those processes and see if we can help, both in terms of workforce training and flexibility and understanding of those kinds of issues, but also in just the way that you roll through all of those kinds of processes to help make them faster and more responsive so that we can deliver better services and really meet that objective of keeping our citizens safe without turning over sort of the expertise in the space to industry. What is it about government's problems that you think the greater public either doesn't understand or gets wrong? I think it's actually important to think first about what they get right, right? <laughs> and I think really citizens are right to think that they should be getting great government service for their tax dollars. And I think they're right to think that government has a responsibility to ensure a common level of well-being, whatever, however you define that term. But what breaks down for me in the process is that government at every level, but especially at the federal level, is complicated. And it doesn't deliver very many services to its citizens directly. So you have a lot of intermediaries that make government services more diffuse and less direct. And so our citizens tend to misassign responsibility because it's really hard to see all the different levels behind that service delivery. Plus, then the interaction between federal agencies and Congress is very complicated. And most of that interaction is entrenched in statute and in law. So it's possible to change, but it's very difficult to change it quickly. So I think that makes it hard for the average citizen to know who to blame when things go wrong, but also who to praise when things go right. And the government is terrible about telling its own story, right? And so this disconnect between the citizens, the services, and how the services get delivered just adds complexity to the conversation. It makes responsibility very diffuse, but it also makes accountability really complicated. How can industry or academia play in here? And I think that goes back to Napa's entire purpose of existence is to get these individuals together. So what does a successful collaboration with government look like? And can Napa perhaps be a role model to other entities in government? It's a really important question. And we've been observing some interesting dynamics around this, especially in the local and regional level. 
and it gets back to agility in government. How do you get government to function faster and better in today's environment? And so what we've seen in regions across the country is that they're figuring this out. Many cities have created councils that combine their local government officials with leaders from their local universities and their local industries to find new ways of addressing their long-running local challenges. And an example that's really pretty well known in the current practice these days is Allegheny County in Pittsburgh, where the local government leaders have partnered with Carnegie Mellon University and the University of Pittsburgh to improve the delivery of social services in their communities. So those universities are bringing data analysis and systems to medical care and service delivery in partnership with the local leaders. They're also really driving an innovation in robotics and engineering economy using the university labs as a nexus for that. But they're integrating that with an economic development strategy and a workforce development plan to build a labor pool that can meet those requirements. So it's a wonderful example of sort of all of the sectors coming together to develop organically the capacity to meet their local governance needs, but bringing the expertise from wherever it resides in the community. So what the academy is hoping to do is kind of replicate those communities of interest through our Grand Challenges agenda. And uh, we really hope that as we roll those topics out in November, that we'll start to develop these collaboration centers where we have universities maybe at the center with their research capacity and their training programs, but that they'll be partnered with local governments, with industry, and with nonprofits to develop solution sets that can address both the near-term immediate issues that the practitioners are facing, but bringing that research and that longer-term perspective to develop to really change the process and the requirements so that they can bring the strength of all of the parties together in a longer-term solutions development set. So it's all about how do you get the right people at the table, introduce them to each other, and then take advantage of their core competencies. Because I think what we see more and more is that the solutions to the issues that we're facing now don't belong to any one particular set of experts, right? They all have to be co-produced. And so you've got to have leaders that can bring that kind of conversation to the table. Is there an example of maybe a solution that Napa has been involved with? As an example, we just did a report last week uh, that kind of culminated a year's worth of effort in three papers about artificial intelligence and public administration. And it took three very different perspectives, but put them all together in one paper. So we looked at what do you have to do to incorporate artificial intelligence into the university curriculum where we're training the next generation of public administrators We looked at um, what are the questions that sort of middle management government officials, and it doesn't matter what level you're at, should be asking about the AI programs that they're thinking about deploying to make sure that they address questions of ethics and bias. And then also sort of for any government manager, what do you need to think about with your workforce, how to prepare your current workforce to receive a deployment of artificial intelligence? And so that really brought together our own practitioner community, our academic community, to think about what the solution sets in those three spaces would look like, and then to publish those. So 
we're sort of organically constructed to bring that together, but we also look for opportunities really to reach outside our own little circle of fellows and bring exactly as you talk about the communities of industry, academia, and practitioners to the table. So you mentioned workforce. Mm -hmm. Do you think the workforce challenge is maybe the biggest challenge in government as far as getting people equipped or ready to handle some of these emerging technologies that are really kind of ramping up? I think the workforce is a big challenge. We don't really even know what we should be training people for, and we can't really see how it's going to play out in the workplace. For me, the bigger challenge is the budget challenge. Because so much of the government operates on one-year budgets when we get them, and because the cycle is so unpredictable these days, it's very difficult for agency leaders to be strategic about their investments in science and technology. So we'll talk broadly. You know, when you have one-year money, it's really hard to invest in a multi-year program. We don't really understand, with few exceptions, how to buy IT as a service as opposed to IT as a box of hardware. And we're not structured to be able to make those kinds of major investments over time and understand what the return on investment is. So the Administration's Technology Modernization Fund is a step in that direction to sort of make IT investment more flexible. For me, that's the hardest part because until you have the investment in technology, you don't really know what you need to train the workforce for. And right now we need to train the workforce to keep the COBOL systems functioning, right? So getting a handle on how to buy IT, whether it's as a service, as a box, as a system, as augmentation, to me really comes first. And that system doesn't work very well. What involvement have you had in your past on IT? (laughs) Because I'm curious here, as you said, IT is not technology in a box. It is a process sometimes. I'm curious how maybe your background experiences can inform some of your initiatives as far as the technology space goes, being that it's not about the equipment anymore. My expertise in technology is accidental. I should be quite transparent. My first position as a senior executive was in the Department of Defense running the Future Years Defense Program, which is their five-year financial planning document. When I took on that job, what I didn't realize I was also taking on was database management, server structures, IT accountability for all of the different systems in the organization. And so I learned on the job, really, kind of the importance of good data, the importance of data sharing. Back then, we were just going to sort of shared licenses and libraries. So tell you a little bit about when I started that. But it gave me a real appreciation of IT as a tool as opposed to IT as a thing. But I also had to do the whole IT acquisition process and the certifications and all those kinds of things. And then when I moved out to Army Material Command and I was the executive deputy, I had responsibility for the IT staff. And at that point, we were learning about how to protect in a cyber environment, how to manage a distributed network. So I had experts who were doing that, but I had to ask the right questions. And so my appreciation for IT is really as a tool for me as a manager. How do I get what I need out of the IT system? But underlying all of that is that you have to have the good data, you have to have data sharing, you have to have common data elements, you have to have people who know what to do with the data, and you have to have a system that delivers the data to you in a reasonable and practical way. 
if you were going to ask me to find a server somewhere, I, would, I don't know that I could find it. But that's how I think about IT really is how do we use it as a tool to deliver better management? Over the past couple years at Napa, you were appointed in January 2017. Has there been a change in focus of technologies that you've looked at, or has there been some kind of trend or maybe a change in priorities? Well, one of the places where the Academy has been fairly active, and it's been in partnership with the Senior Executive Association and the Shared Services Leadership Coalition, is around how can we help government managers move towards more of a shared services environment? And I think that's kind of what we're talking about here. How do you teach government managers to trust a shared solution? one that they don't own, that's not in their locked closet somewhere that they can't turn on and turn off, and yet one that's going to deliver software as a service so that it's going to be constantly updated. It's going to be cloud-based, so it's as secure as the cloud's going to be, but you share it with other people, and it changes. You're going to have to adapt to that as opposed to having the technology adapt to you. So that's a place where we've been pretty active. We have been engaged an independent agency looks at how their management processes are aligned, how their tools and software are supporting their own operations. But I think the bigger thing is how can we help government managers move towards this goal of shared services because it impacts everything from how many people come to work and where they work and how they work to really how do you run the insides of the day-to-day -day operations of the organization. Now, since West Point, you have gone on to get an MBA at Duke. Mm -hmm. do go, you think, go Duke. Yeah. <laughs> what, was the, what was the reasoning behind that? What well, were you looking to do? Actually, the Army sent me to get my MBA and with a plan that I would go back and be on the economics faculty at West Point. Oh, wow. So that was wonderful. I got to go back and uh, teach for a year, and then I did research in their Office of Economic and Manpower Analysis for a couple of years. And so... I happened to be at Duke when they won the national championship in 1991. Uh, All right. <laughs> <laughs> but it's been a really useful background set of information, right, in everything about how do you communicate the value of your product? How do you think about your core competencies and what, what it costs you to deliver those sorts of things to how do you manage a business? Um, so I got to go back and teach for three years, which was wow. great. Yeah. Well, that's great. And then you spent some time in Germany as well? I did. That was before grad school. That was my second assignment. I was a maintenance company commander in West Germany when it wow. was still West and East oh Germany. Goodness. But really was a fabulous opportunity. I was, we had a company of 300 people, 300 soldiers, who were providing all of the maintenance support to a combat infantry brigade. So everything from tanks to radios to weapon systems and supplies and all those sorts of logistics. So it was really, you learned on the job every day about customer service and customer satisfaction, right? Because if you didn't have the things fixed when they were supposed to be fixed, you had a lot to answer for. So it was a lot about management, uh, process, quality control, training of your soldiers, making sure that they were trained on the latest equipment and delivering good service to your client who was the brigade the combat brigade. So it's a lot of principles that really are timeless. Absolutely. The things I learned as an army officer, really specific to the army, but really lots of application in all kinds of... What's next for you? You have a 20-year army career. You have um, some time as a consultant. Now you're at Napa. 
What's next? Well, I'm not done at Napa yet. We still have a lot to do. I mentioned a little bit earlier our, our Grand Challenges in Public Administration campaign. So that's been a year's worth of effort in terms of getting public input into what people think the big issues that governments should be working on for the next decade are. I will unveil those in November at our fall meeting. And so thinking about how that becomes an agenda for the Academy going forward and how Napa can provide some strategic direction for basically the field of public administration to develop these solution sets around those grand challenges. There's a lot of work left to be done. And then we'll see. There's still so many challenges in the space of government and governance that I feel really compelled to participate in. So we'll see how long the tour at Napa lasts, but uh, I think I'll always be engaged in some way in trying to make government work better. And that's one of the things I love about the Academy. The mission statement is to make government work and work for all. And that last phrase is really important because we try to take that comprehensive view about how is government working, but more importantly, how is it affecting all kinds of citizens? And are we thinking about how the policies that we make affect each and every one of the people in this country? And so that's a pretty compelling perspective. I look to be involved in it. Well, I will be watching from afar and up close. I do attend some of NAPA events, so I will definitely keep up to that. (laughs) Good. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for joining. This was a great conversation, and I'm glad to have gotten to know you a little bit better and about NAPA's mission, and I look forward to hearing more about it. Amy, thanks for the opportunity. It's been great. Thank you. GovCast is a production of Government CIO Media and Research. For more podcasts, head to governmentcio.com slash podcasts. GovCast is produced by Amy Kluber. It is edited by Resonate Recordings. Theme music provided by Big Hoax. If you're interested in sponsoring a podcast, contact Joe O'Neill at j-o-n-e-i-l-l at governmentcio.com. (laughs) 